We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and who like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance will ever get to be a completely red Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. Wherever but more uncertain now. And listen, Blue Ivy is six years old, Beyonce is she tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. In five, four, That's why you need three, to take a meeting two, with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello and welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy and I'm joined here today by my good friends... Yogi Paywall. Steve Jeffers. And so, uh, long-time listeners of this podcast have uh, likely noted my slow descent into madness over the course of the coronavirus lockdowns, <laughs> as I've led myself down every rabbit hole of uh, JFK, RFK, MK Ultra, Vince Foster, Promise Software, uh, vaccine and fluoride skepticism, and uh, we're... <laughs> We're here today to continue that, uh, but today we're going to talk about a quote-unquote conspiracy theory that is, uh, in my mind, so blatant and so obvious that I think even the people who are usually uh, skeptical of so-called conspiracy theories have to admit that there is something seriously wrong with the official narrative. And uh, I'm talking, of course, about the 2001 anthrax attacks in the United States. Um, and to discuss them, we're joined by a guest, Robbie Martin, who's a podcaster and documentary filmmaker who has been studying this issue for over 10 years now. He's produced a short documentary on it called American Anthrax and a very informative podcast uh, with Media Roots called uh, uh, with Media Roots Radio called Schrodinger's Super Patriot, the 2001 Anthrax Mystery. And we will link to both of those in the description for this episode. Uh, Robbie Martin, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And... I also want to mention why this story is topical right now. There's a there's a new documentary coming out called Enemies of the State. It tells the story of hacktivist uh, Matt DeHart, who has claimed to have received classified documents from somebody uh, claiming to be an FBI official, uh, implicating the CIA in those anthrax attacks. Uh, uh, Matt DeHart is currently serving a seven and a half year prison sentence for possession of child pornography that may or may not be a politically motivated charge. And Robbie, you got the chance to interview Matt DeHart back in 2013. So I, I do want to talk about his story more generally and uh, your in impressions of him. But before we kind of go down that rabbit hole, maybe you could just back up and you could remind uh, people who are listening and who might not know what the anthrax attacks were and what the general timeline is and the details that everybody kind of universally agrees on. Sure. So right after 9-11, um, there was this perception that the Bush administration was trying to portray and the media, you know, obviously helped them in this uh, pursuit, which was to make the American public feel as if terrorism was not just a one-off event in Manhattan and in Virginia, I think is where the Pentagon is, or Mar is it Maryland? I don't know the exact location of the Pentagon, but uh, it's not in DC proper. Um, but the Bush administration had this goal in mind to make the American public feel that terrorism was a new way of life, that this was not just a singular incident and that it meant that more attacks would continue. And, you know, several actual Bush associates, not people in the administration, but people like Don Kagan and actually Richard Pearl, who was currently serving in the Pentagon at the time, predicted 
on live broadcast that the next attack would be anthrax. And Hmm. in fact, it was. And on October 5th uh, was the first uh, official death um, reported from an unknown uh, anthrax attack or like attacker um, that killed somebody named Robert Stevens, a photojournalist working for the National Enquirer in Florida. And after that happened, uh, within days, it became sort of this hysterical media atmosphere and the Bush administration and George W. Bush himself helped sort of egg it on that this could be from Al-Qaeda, uh, that this could be a second stage of 9-11, and that it might not just be Al-Qaeda because, you know, there was already this framework that existed during the Clinton administration that terrorists could possibly be working with, you know, ex-Soviet defectors or even Saddam Hussein to acquire biological weapons or things that were too sophisticated for a group like Al-Qaeda to obtain on their own. So then we had so already had this three-way connection that started forming this idea that it was Al-Qaeda, you know, bin Laden, and Saddam somehow working together that may have done these anthrax attacks. Now, I should also say that on, even on the day of 9-11, there were people like James Woolsey of Project for the New American Century already saying Iraq did 9-11. So this just added extra ammunition to that idea that this was a continuing series of terrorist attacks somehow done by Al-Qaeda, but now they have anthrax, which means state actor, potentially. So we have this snowball already rolling. And over the course of October, November, and December, four more people died from this anthrax. And uh, an old uh, an old lady, a widow, I think she was 89 years old in Connecticut, uh, passed away from anthrax, um, named Adelie Lundgren. And there were two postal workers who worked at the Brentwood Post, post Office um, who also passed away from anthrax infec- infection, inhalation anthrax infection. Now, what's ultra disturbing to me about those specific two deaths of those postal employees is that one of them is actually on his 911 call the day that he died is saying that no one, not his bosses, no managers told them to do anything to get checked up, to take Cipro, nothing. Hmm. And this was like a month or two after 9-11. And apparently this was reported by Judicial Watch, um, I think sometime in 2002, that the Bush administration was actually officially told, uh, some people think it was Jerome Hauer who told them to do this, to start taking Cipro on the evening of 9-11 with this idea that the next attack was going to be anthrax. So all those pieces were sort of in play. And so now you have five deaths. And uh, oddly, it took the FBI about a week and a half to actually start investigating this. It was only the CDC was in charge of it for the first week, which seems a little strange to me considering 9-11 had just happened. Um, So once the FBI started to, you know, investigate this and there are actual FBI people on the ground at these crime scenes, there was already leaks coming out from the FBI to the press saying that this was the AIM strain, which has American fingerprints on it. Those stories got largely buried in the press, but they did get out there. There was someone in the FBI who wanted the public to know this. And at the same time, you have much more powerful leaks coming out through ABC News that got way more attention in the media. Uh, such as Brian Ross's ABC News segment, where he said that insider intelligence officials say that the anthrax that was sent through the mail uh, has telltale signs of Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program because it supposedly had bentonite in it, Hmm. which 
it didn't but bentonite is basically just like clay it's not it's not it's not nothing really even that specialized to have so the story itself doesn't really make much sense but it really sort of fueled this idea that Saddam was behind the attacks and then you had the weekly standard and all these neocon outlets also saying that Saddam was probably behind the attacks so this framework, this thinking is sort of what led to the idea of weapons inspections, even though people may not connect that in their mind. I mean, the entire UN presentation that Colin Powell ended up, ended up doing to try to sell the Iraq war was almost completely contingent on anthrax. I mean, he spent most of his time talking about anthrax. By that time, the yellow cake, the idea of nerve gas stockpiles, and even that supposed meeting behind the Bathist people and Muhammad Atta, those ideas mostly fell to the wayside. People had debunked those, but we did experience a real anthrax attack here, which made people incredibly afraid and made a lot of people in the country feel that maybe terrorism could hit me in my own home. I mean, that's like a whole other layer of this sort of war on terror hysteria that I think people largely forget because they only remember you know, uh, 9-11. They only remember the Pentagon and the World Trade Centers getting hit. But I, I should also mention, I forgot to say this, that there were actual letters sent uh, that had contained this anthrax. And two of those letters got to um, Senators Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle. And what's interesting about them being targeted, even though they didn't, they didn't get infected, they survived. Um, other people and their staff had to get tested and go to the hospital, but they ended up being fine. But what's strange about that is they were actually two of the only senators who were slowing down the passing of the Patriot Act. And oh. when I say slowing down, I don't mean like aggressively rallying against it. They're basically centrist. They were merely just putting a little bit of brakes on it and being and telling the Bush administration, hey, let's like actually you know have some time to talk this out. And then they got targeted with an anthrax letter. They were supposed to be targeted actually on the same day, but apparently Patrick Leahy's letter got delayed in the mail and didn't end up arriving until like a two weeks later or something like that. Fucking lazy postman. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Tom Daschle was the Senate majority leader at the time. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Democrat. We should just underline for listeners who maybe weren't alive then or, or don't really remember. Cause you know, I was a kid then and I actually doing the research for this episode has brought back a lot of memories to me. Like, first of all, just the general sense of terror in the country after 9-11 was really exacerbated both by um, the, this idea that you were going to open your mail and get killed by anthrax powder. Um, and also, of course, the DC sniper was going around then. So there was just like this real sense of paranoia that I think um, I really felt as a child and that a lot of people who weren't there can't really understand. And I did also, I had another memory that I, I just wanted to bring up in terms of linking this to Saddam, I do remember, you know, I would, uh, I had this shitty little uh, 56K uh, com, uh, what is it called? CompuServe? It, yeah, CompuServe internet connection that I would play StarCraft on, and we only had one modem line, so if one of my mom's friends called, I would get disconnected and lose the match immediately <laughs> and get extremely pissed off. But... What, so one of these days, you know, like late 2001, probably like December or October 2001, I logged on to my CompuServe internet, and they, of course, have the default news home screen. I saw on that default news home screen as a child uh, something to the effect of a news article saying, experts link the anthrax attacks to Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And I actually brought that to my mother, and I told her about that. And she said, uh, paraphrase, she said, they just want a war. They just want to go to war with Iraq. 
And, you know, one of the most perceptive things uh, my mother ever said, but uh, it was just interesting <laughs> to, re- to remember that and just to kind of remember the, uh, the general attitude of living through that. Sean, didn't your mom once say, don't go into stand-up comedy or podcasting? Yes. Wasn't that something she also said? <laughs> the second most perceptive thing my mother ever said. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's part of why I put together, you know, such a very, very specific uh, sort of surgical chronology of the first three months of the attacks, because I, my sort of theory behind doing that is that it'll actually like jog people's memories. Even people who they think back on it, they're like, yeah, I vaguely remember that. But just sort of walking people back through that that time period, I think maybe like unlocks, you know, some memories people still have buried in there. And they're like, oh yeah, that, you know, that happened. What the hell? So that's, hmm. and I, I found that it's been effective for doing that for people. Um, when I show them that. Yeah, and to just underline something you said there, Robbie, about this, the actual type of anthrax that we, that was used in these letters, this is the Ames strain of anthrax, and there's an article in Salon in 2002, um, I'm quoting from it, uh, there are probably less than 50 scientists in the U.S. with the necessary skills uh, to do this, because when we're talking about this Ames strain, this was later traced to a specific U.S. government lab, I believe in Maryland, so just in terms of like the number of people who actually have access to this, it's extremely small. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Because once they knew it was the AIM strain, they knew it had to be somebody with access to the AIM strain. And that's, you know, you, you can really narrow it down rather quickly from there. Um, and that's the, that's the interesting thing about this is people inside the FBI knew that it was the classic, you know, inside job type of crime from very early on. Yet they chose to allow the Bush administration and, you know, you can really point the blame on Mueller because he was in charge of the investigation at the time for allowing the Bush administration to basically use that as their Hail Mary, you know, for the Iraq war. Like if anybody from the FBI said anything in public about that, it, it I mean, in my mind, it might have actually, well, maybe this is too optimistic, but it could have, you know, maybe on the off chance stopped the Iraq war from building up as fast as it did. I don't know, but uh, it's to me that they they have there's a lot of blame there. So whoever that whistleblower was that leaked that it was the aim strain, I mean that person's you know kind of good in my book for a for an FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> was it another another reason they were particularly like uh, concerned about this strain was it had been refined down to where like each of the particles was like a lot smaller than your typical and produced clumsily produced anthrax strain which wouldn't be able to get through like a lot of filtration systems and whatnot but this one would so it was like had the hallmarks of like a bioweapon rather than just being like something hastily done absolutely yeah um that that's one thing uh that that's why so many people in the capitol building um so many staffers had to go to the hospital and uh get treated even though they were mostly fine they, they didn't have symptoms they technically got infected they breathed a little bit of it in through the ventilation systems mm. i mean yeah so that 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 speaks to a a highly refined type of powder um that you know people who actually open these envelopes some of them described it being almost like smoke like when you open you know you open up this envelope full of powder even though it wasn't very much, it would actually start to float in the air immediately. Like um, in the same way, like powdered sugar or magician smoke that you like rub on your fingers would just start to, you know, create a little cloud in the air. Um, and yeah, I think I think when people picture the anthrax attack actually happening, 
they're kind of just saying like, all right, so whoever opens the letter is probably screwed, but no one else. But yeah. actually, that it gets into this was like so highly refined, like you're saying, that it was like it can very easily affect like twenty or more people in a building if you're not careful. Absolutely. I mean, they did full hazmat like quarantines on uh, on the Capitol building. Um, I think even on the Supreme Court building uh, because the, I guess a letter. I don't remember if a letter got through there or went through the mail sorter there or something. And they actually, it was like the first time that they had had to move the Supreme Court somewhere else. Um, So these buildings were fully locked down. I mean, even the AMI building where Robert Stevens worked uh, got fully quarantined. And that's another strange aspect to this case is some of the people who died from it actually themselves never interacted with any strange or suspicious letters. Um, Hmm. Uh, specifically the uh, widow in Connecticut, uh, Audelie Lundgren, there's no evidence that she ever got a letter. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the... I, I, her name escapes me. The, the the second to last victim who also died never got a letter. And the first victim, I mean, there's a, there's some eyewitnesses who say he got a letter. Uh, but the story, that story of his letter is very different from the rest of them. And also, the guy who was eventually accused of doing this, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but his lawyer... Um, will you know still says he's not being paid by uh, his family anymore but he'll still swear that the refinement levels of the anthrax found in the different uh, letters actually speak to people with different resources that it wasn't just that it was all the same level of refinement in each letter like they weren't all the same power of sort of weaponized anthrax strains some of them were sort of crudely done as well <laughs> and that's one of his reasons for saying that Bruce Ivan's uh, the you know the suspect they landed on is actually innocent because he couldn't have done all these different styles of um, preparation of anthrax that were found. Huh. Right, and again to just kind of underline this because I think people who say oh you're a conspiracy theorist or oh we we solved this one I think they have this idea in their head that anybody can get anthrax or it's like making rice and poison or something. But no, we know that the AIM strain had to come from a U.S. government lab. And despite this initially, um, and, you know, Robbie goes through this uh, in a lot of detail on uh, on the timeline of the, uh, the podcast I mentioned earlier, Schrodinger's Super Patriot. But just despite this, you know, there is a very public and very long campaign to tie this to Iraq and to tie this to Al-Qaeda and all this, despite, of course, the strain coming from a U.S. government lab. But eventually, because it came from a U.S. government lab, they do have to tie it to U.S. government scientists. And they accuse two. First, they accuse a guy named Stephen Hatfill, who would eventually, um, the Justice Department would uh, clear his uh, clear his name and pay him a settlement, I believe $5 million. And then later, they accuse another scientist named Bruce Ivins, who is uh, hounded by a very public investigation and then in 2008 commits suicide. And to this day, the U.S. government insists that Bruce Ivins was the man who carried out these attacks. And, uh, Robbie, kind of the bottom line of it to me, and and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there is literally no physical evidence whatsoever or no non-circumstantial evidence whatsoever that actually ties either of these two accused scientists to the attacks. That's correct, yeah. Um, With Bruce Ivins, the FBI tried to use what they claimed was DNA evidence. That was their only... Uh, evidence that was other than circumstantial that supposedly linked him to the attacks. But what's funny about that is they actually hired a government agency called the National Academy of Sciences to verify their DNA evidence. And 
before the National Academy of Sciences actually finished their own analysis, the FBI was like, okay, uh, we're fine. We're just going to like go forward with the investigation results and we're going to do a press conference. We don't need your confirmation anymore. And the NAS was like, well, you guys already, we already have the funding. We're already doing it. So when our thing's done, we'll just let you know. But okay. So the FBI went forward, pretended like they never hired the NAS. And months later, I think something like eight months after the FBI came forward with their claim that Bruce Ivins did it, here we had the DNA proof. It's in the form of a flask that has anthrax spores in it. And the NAS, eight months after this press conference or so, said that uh, actually we could not verify the FBI's DNA analysis. And in fact, this is not evidence at all that this links him to the crime. So the government's own agency, National Academy of Sciences, uh, basically rebuked the FBI's DNA finding. So ultimately, no, there was no physical evidence of any kind. It's all circumstantial. Right. And I really recommend also the Frontline documentary, The Anthrax Files, kind of goes through this. But when we talk about the government investigating these two scientists, this is a very kind of brutal and public investigation where apparently before they raided uh, the first guy, Stephen Hatfield's house, before they raided his house, they called the media and tipped them off. So they all knew to be there and knew to see the FBI ransacking this guy's house. And uh, and Bruce Ivins, they were following 24 hours a day. Apparently, they offered Ivins' son two and a half million US dollars to testify against him. So, I mean, like, you know, and, and we could go on and on and on, but this is like a real harassment campaign against these two. And they're the only real evidence they produce is that Bruce Ivins kind of seems like he might have been a, a bit of a weird guy. Like, I guess he had women's panties in his basement and some obsession with some sorority, but nothing I mean, who that actually. Have that, though, Sean? Come on. Yes. Now. Who doesn't have <laughs> women's normal panties stuff and there, obsessed so. with the sorority where a woman wouldn't have sex with you back in the day? Come on. That's right. That's that's lambda, lambda, lambda material right there. Right. You know, the frontline doc did make me come across with like a this is very nerds against jocks type of mentality with the scientists being like, uh, they are just targeting us because they don't know what's going on and the Mueller and the FBI team just being like, we need to nail somebody to the wall on this because we're getting our asses handed to us. Yeah, I mean, pretty pretty much. I mean, definitely convenient scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, you know, this idea that it's just one person. You know, we like every, I'd say even I tend to do this when I'm looking at this. I'm like, oh, well, who who is it? Well, what if it's not just one person? What if it's actually a team of people who did this or, you know, a group mm-hmm. of people? And that's actually what Patrick Leahy and Tom Daschle have both said publicly. Hmm. Like, and it's interesting to watch them actually be asked about this because they don't want to talk about it. They're like really bothered by it, especially Daschle. The last time someone brought it up to him, I think it was at like a book, uh, sp- like speaking event or something. And he was really flustered. Uh, he and Patrick Leahy both have said openly that they don't think that that Ivan's uh, um, being the suspect makes sense. And Leahy has said that he thinks there are still people out there who are guilty of murder who have not been taken in for this. So he's basically saying he thinks it's a team of individuals. Yeah, like from that documentary you made, one of the things you highlight is apparently, so one of the anthrax letters was sent to Tom Brokaw at NBC News. Apparently on this letter, a handwriting expert looked at it, and the uh, the letter R 
like every word that has the the letter R in it. Apparently, the way the R's are written changes between the ones written inside the letter and the ones written on the envelope, hmm. which uh, possibly indi- yeah possibly indicates two different authors. Um, but I, I did also just want to highlight that uh, one the content of one of the letters is just I, I posted it on Twitter. It's just so absurd to me. But uh, one of the letters that w- one of the anthrax letters that was sent has the date nine eleven zero one at the top, and it says, and I'm, I'm quoting what they actually wrote in this anthrax letter here: "Quote, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great." Unquote. And it's just like. I don't know. This, uh, you, you you read that and you're like, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. This is definitely uh, what an Islamic terrorist organization would do and not my fucking fourth grade novel about, uh, <laughs> you know, an Islamic jihad cell. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. I don't know, Sean. I, I hear that and I, I clearly see that's a scientist that wrote that. Right. But it's like, yeah, it's why would a lone nut attacker, but, you know. Well, that's where the that's where the uh, the term super patriot comes from. Is one of the FBI's theories? Uh, I don't even know if they did a like, you know, when they do a profile of the sus. They probably did some like loose profiling of him early on, you know, before mm-hmm. they went ahead and targeted Bruce Ivins. But I think it actually was in the FBI report that s- someone says that he must have been a super patriot that <laughs> was so inspired by wow. the Bush administration's war on terror that he wanted to just. You know, basically like a super patriot accelerationist neocon right. who yeah. happened to work at Fort Detrick, Maryland with access <laughs> to anthrax. Right. Uh, the DNA evidence that narrowed it down to like, okay, there's 50 people that have access to labs capable of producing this strain or whatever. Uh, it could be like, you, you, it could be any number of those 50 and it could also be uh, their relationships outside of the 50 in order to get it to sent to Tom Daschle or whoever. And also one other angle to look at here too is like, that's what we know that that's what's public uh, knowledge in terms of how many scientists might have access to this with these government labs. There's a whole other angle to this that Matt DeHart and his uh, claims that sort of came out that this could have actually come from a private, some sort of privatized lab that deals in bioweapons. Mm-hmm. Now, when yeah. you when you throw that into the mix and how much of the war on terror sort of this gray area of intelligence sectors mixing, you know, and military sectors mixing with private industry, you have to look at a company like Battelle, um, which did at, at times produce weaponized anthrax, apparently, and got all these CIA contracts. I mean, they're one of the top, you know, military intelligence contractors. So there's there's all these different possibilities here, I think. So um, the Fort Detrick angle, um, it, it might have come from there, but I think that what a lot of the evidence that's come out has shown that it really could have come from anywhere. Um, and that's part of what the NAS, the National Academy of Sciences, said when they rebuked the FBI's DNA findings. They said that the type of anthrax that was used could mutate on its own and actually like make it untraceable in terms of like this DNA fingerprint of where it may have come from anyways. Um, yeah, and, you're right. So, Yeah, I mean, they, I, was, I was reading something about like the... The NAS said, like, it would be certainly be expensive to set up a private lab capable of doing Dietrich-level anth- anthrax strains, but it's not insurmountable. And, like, you'd need to get, like, a scanning micro- electron microscope and a bunch of other expensive stuff that would total, cut like, maybe $2 million. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll have to actually, I don't remember them talking about the private labbing. I'll have to look into that again. Right, but it's so interesting to me that the first letter was sent a week after the 9-11 attacks. I mean, it seems like somebody clearly had this ready to go. It, it just doesn't seem like the type of thing you can just throw together overnight. Um, and again, the deaths are five deaths, uh, two USPS workers, a 95-year-old widow in Connecticut, a photojournalist in Florida, and a New York City hospital worker died. Um, and as Robbie mentioned, not all of these deaths can be actually linked to an anthrax letter. So it's all very suspicious. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that it's like the FBI has a lot of theories, you know, not just of who did it, but like of how it got around that I think we should question more, including the idea that mail sorters, mail sorting machines, you know, that we hear about so often right now during the election are responsible for causing these random people across the country to die. I just don't, I, there's really no evidence to suggest that's the case. So that also needs to be, I think, examined more. That, that's a that's the thing that's kind of wild. Like I was thinking about because every time we've seen like uh, in the frontline doc and the other things, the amount of anthrax that were in the letters. Like I, I know it's uh, not the real amount, but like it seems like it's like you know like a quarter of a cup or something. And I've always wondered like if I were you know not to play evil supervillain or not nothing, but like if I were to do this now, I'd put it like on the taping of a package so when you like took off the tape you would release anthrax in the air but i don't think that's really realistic like what what was the amount of powder that was in these letters because it seems so far-fetched yogi you just gave them a probable cause warrant (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a great question and i wish i knew the answer to that but if we go by what colin powell said less than a teaspoon apparently of anthrax was used in each letter Uh, That's what he's actually, it's an actual quote from him during the UN speech. And he's holding a vial of like mock anthrax. It looks like it's about, I don't know, maybe an ounce or something. Right. right. Um, And uh, I, I, yeah, the the thing I wanted to say to your point, Sean, is this idea of, you know, that this was sent only a week after 9-11. It seemed like there was someone, whoever did this maybe even had some foreknowledge, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think that might be what you're suggesting. So Mm -hmm. taking that into account... That's a good time to mention the fact that, let's say, whoever did 9-11 um, was also trying to link the anthrax attacks to the same perpetrators of 9-11, and it was going to be presented more as a double whammy terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda. There are some strange things that you know don't really make sense, according to the FBI's official story, like Mohammed Atta, for example, trying to rent a crop duster, and... Specifically, uh, apparently trying to rent it for the purposes of spreading biological weapons. There was actually another hijacker who was uh, treated in the hospital by a doctor who believed that he had cutaneous anthrax infection hmm. uh, leading up to 9-11. These things just, to me, they don't, they're not puzzle pieces that fit into what we already know. They just make this you know, puzzle much larger and almost hmm. more confusing because how, is, how could that be if Bruce Ivins was responsible for this? And, you know, the FBI and, and the government never said that the hijackers had anything to do with the anthrax, but the media surrounding the, these things at the time really was suggesting that to be the case. And real witnesses, you know, there, there are people who are, were real people who, you know, the doctor who treated um, one of these hijackers, the guy at the airfield who saw Mohammed Atta trying to steal a crop duster off the runway. I mean, just bizarre behavior. Um, so it, it, to me, it just makes it a lot more confusing. 
Yeah, and to just talk about the letters themselves, I believe officially there are four actual anthrax letters sent, but then there are also a bunch of hoax letters where like apparently um, yes. government officials in Israel and Japan, I, I think somebody in Australia too, would uh, receive these letters just full of, full of white powder, but it's not anthrax. Apparently Judith Miller of the New York Times also got one of these hoax letters. So again, this is all just, I mean, it really did create a climate of sheer terror at the time. Right. Yeah, what's fascinating about her, I mean, I'm glad you brought her up, and I don't want to get sound too tinfoil to people out there, but she's a really interesting person in all this too, because her anthrax hoax letter, I think only arrived like five days after Robert Stevens died. It, did, hmm. it, it was, the timing of it seemed strange, because it's like whoever sent this fake anthrax letter to her, did they also know the real anthrax attacks were coming? How does that make sense? And then strangely, she released a book all about Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program two days before Robert Stevens died from anthrax. And there's a really creepy quote uh, that Scooter Libby was sending her a coded message, I believe when he was in jail, and she was communicating to him in jail. And he said something about when the Aspens turn, their roots connect, and your job is to talk... Iraq and biological weapon like he this is literally like a message he sends her from prison and it's just like well what was she was she just a Bush administration proxy like was she a journalist like what's the deal with Judith Miller I don't know but um I, her whole deal is really really weird right and yeah Judith Miller the New York Times is one of the journalists kind of most responsible for selling the WMDs in Iraq lie um, and I think you also noted, Robbie, in your podcast that apparently pre-9-11, she took part in some sort of um, biological weapons attack simulator or training. Is that correct? You're referring to Operation Dark Winter. Yeah, that has actually spawned um, a video game and uh, and like a, a Discovery Channel special at this <laughs> point. But yeah, it was, uh, it was not just a, for a simulated anthrax attack, which also did happen in this uh, simulation drill. It took place in June of 2000, or no, so June of 2001, just a few months before 9-11. And it was uh, Judith Miller, James Woolsey, uh, Jerome Hauer, and a few other journalists and people pretending to be different people. Like, like James Woolsey pretended to be the FEMA director during this drill. Um, and the drill was essentially a simulated uh, pandemic uh, caused by some terrorist group. And the pandemic was a smallpox release uh, by Al-Qaeda. They don't say who the group is in the simulation, but it was, the idea is a terrorist releases a bioweapon. And then at the end of this so-called dark winter, when all the hospital beds are taken up, it's eerily, in a weird way, sort of similar to a lot of the predictions before COVID really hit. Right, um, right. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, kind of unsettling as well as... Uh, are those similarities, but but at the end of this simulation, and there's a series of fake news broadcasts, actually, you can watch on YouTube right now if you look for Operation Dark Winter, where they have actors pretending to be um, reporters. You know, they do this during these various drills. Uh, you can watch them going back the last 10 or 20 years, different types of drills. But this one is really creepy because at the very end, the last news broadcast, when there's basically like in the simulation, there's like civil war breaking out. All the hospital beds are flooded. People are dying from smallpox all over the country. The electricity's off. It's like that's what's happening while this news reporter's talking. And then she reports at the end that the FBI has said that a, a letter was sent 
uh, to the government or to the White House saying that next comes anthrax. And they believe that the letter came from someone, uh, a terrorist group uh, that was working for bin Laden, somehow hired by Saddam Hussein. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, they actually say this in the <laughs> wow. in the end of the uh, the simulation. And it's just, at that point, it's like, I mean, come on. Like, it's almost like, I, I, and it's hard to talk about without sounding like Alex Jonesy tinfoil level, but sure, sure. It's, I mean, it's real. I mean, it's a real simulation. I'm not saying that they, you know, these people are involved in the anthrax attacks, but it's, it's just a strange coincidence, to say the least. Right. And, you know, just to kind of underline that again, you know, so Marcy Wheeler is a journalist. She put together a, a timeline of this at uh, shadowproof.com we can link to. But just to kind of underline, I think a lot of people listening, they do understand that, you know, the media in the U.S. and abroad kind of it sold bullshit on the WMDs in Iraq. And the way it did that was, you know, quoting unnamed high up officials, just taking them at their word, printing their claims uh, fully credulously. But I think what has been kind of totally forgotten is, as this timeline lays out, the exact same thing happened with the anthrax attacks. Just throughout all of 2001 or throughout late 2001, all these major reports, like you mentioned, ABC News did a big report on October 28th, 2001, uh, citing this link to Saddam Hussein. Apparently, John McCain went on The Late Show with David Letterman, October 18, 2001, and said, quote, some of this anthrax may have come from Iraq, unquote. And so just kind of like, and, you know, of course, The New York Times, Judy Miller and all this. And, and so just all of this uh, kind of build up. It does have an effect, and then it's never really walked back, walked back, or corrected later. Or if it is the correction, nobody sees it. So yeah, I mean that's that's part of the problem with this whole case is it's not just been none of you know barely any fact checking or corrections were done. It's been like memory hold, and this hmm. strange way that I can't really explain. I mean, I've never really seen anything like it because I mean it, when you really look back at all these events, it. It was one of, it's basically the magic key that allowed them to create the situation necessary for the Iraq war. Like, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm giving the American people too much credit, but I, I do think that on some level, if they did not have that hysteria running in the background, it would have, it would have been much harder for them to create the climate that they needed um, to push the Iraq war through. Right. And before we move on to the case of Matt DeHart, I do want to point out one more thing. And I think this is very important to understand, which is, you know, of course, we mentioned Bruce Ivins commits suicide in 2008. The government to this day maintains that he is the lone nut who carried out the anthrax attacks. But I think as we've established, and as I do encourage you, the listener, to look up for yourself, there is absolutely no physical evidence whatsoever, no traces of anthrax uh, linked to the attacks, linked to him, you know, nothing. So you would think that just to kind of put this all to, to bed, the government would want to just do one more investigation, just kind of, you know, get this out there. Like, let's not let the conspiracy loons take over the airwaves. Let's do a public investigation. But there was a claim in your documentary, Robbie, that I, you know, my eyes bulged out of my skull when I saw it. And I had to look it up and confirm for myself that um, shortly after taking office, uh, President Obama passes an executive order halting future investigations into the anthrax case and threatens to veto uh, a congressional proposal to reopen the case. And I actually did look at this. There's This is from 2010. There was 
a budget for the U.S. intelligence agency submitted or proposed to be submitted to the White House in 2010. Uh, and then from a Bloomberg write-up of this, quote, President Barack Obama probably would veto legislation authorizing the next budget for U.S. intelligence agencies if it calls for a new investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks, an administration official said. A proposed probe by the intelligence agency's inspector general would, quote, would undermine public confidence in an FBI probe of the attacks and, quote, unfairly cast doubt on its conclusions, unquote. Uh, this is all said by Peter Orzog, at the time Obama's director of the Office of, Mud of Management and Budget. He wrote it in a letter to leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. So Obama, through his uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget in 2010, threatened to veto the U.S. intelligence agency's budget for the year if they didn't take out language proposing a new probe into the anthrax attacks and that's just so ridiculous to me that for some reason this is such a sticking point that they just can't reopen uh reopen this can of worms and i think i would really challenge anybody who who thinks we have the full story here to just explain why it was so important to get this language saying let's just let the inspector general do one more investigation out of the uh, intelligence agency's budget yeah it's fucked up I mean, it's 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 really unfortunate that I just you know there's just no public pressure for it is the problem. Mm. I mean, I don't even know if Russ Holt or any of these other people who used to talk about it bring it up. I know for sure that Patrick Leahy or Tom Daschle, um, they don't like to talk about it at all. And uh, you know, I who knows why that is. Um, you know, maybe the FBI is sort of feeding them information, claiming that you know there's a reason to not talk about. It. I have no idea, but. It's it's a real shame, and uh, you know even just journalists I, I feel have failed on this. I mean, there's so many threads that are still out there that I blame you know just the culture in D.C. Uh, for this as well. I mean, just like these journalists, why isn't anybody looking into this? I mean, um, it, it it's very odd to me, and I don't I you know I don't know if some of them have and have just decided not to go public with their information. I mean, in fact, well I'll just say this here that I know some journalists who are definitely more prominent people than me um, who largely agree with all my conclusions and my research, but they don't want to talk about some of these things. So to me, that's, mm. that sucks. Um, and I just don't, I, I don't feel very hopeful that we're really ever going to see a reopening or anything. I mean, maybe a, some, maybe another journalist or other journalists who have a budget um, could do something, but uh, you know, it's going to take real like legwork and basically a, a full-fledged new investigation of it. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a good uh, a good transition point to talk about Matt DeHart, who, um, again, we mentioned at the top, uh, is the subject of an op upcoming documentary, Enemies of the State, which uh, unfortunately we were not able to, to, to get access to. But uh, from various reviews I've read, it uh, apparently the movie takes kind of an agnostic point of view as to whether or not Matt DeHart is telling the truth. But um, Robbie, I know you interviewed Matt DeHart back in 2013. So maybe you could just kind of tell our listeners the basics of his story and also just what your impressions of him are. So I first heard of him, um, someone uh, from his family contacted me because they had heard that I was, you know, had released some research on the anthrax attacks. And um so I, you know, I didn't really know much about his case. I didn't know much about his background working for um, U.S. military. 
uh, doing stuff with drones. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I still don't know a whole lot about that background of his. I know more about his case. I can talk a little bit about that. Um, but uh, I was mostly interested in, you know, the idea that this guy could have actually gotten a hold of real leaked documents um, that were given to him by supposedly an FBI whistleblower who's, who's still anonymous, uh, basically compiling uh, multiple, like at first I actually just thought it was one document. And I, so on the phone, when I was talking to him, I'm asking him in my mind, thinking that he just got a hold of one document, maybe leading to some weird conclusion that totally contradicts the FBI's investigation. I had no idea what it was he actually had. It turns out that this FBI whistleblower had compiled like a, like a, a stack of documents, basically mm. concluding that his theory was that this these documents in total show that the CIA was somehow behind the 2001 anthrax attacks. Um, I couldn't, you know, he wasn't sure based on the documents if this meant that the guy meant a rogue part of the CIA, a rogue CIA agent. He was just, uh, his sort of framing was that it was sort of an institutional thing. And... Mm. He didn't really talk much about the cover-up, but the key things that came out in my discussion with Matt DeHart um, was that apparently in that paperwork was a document showing uh, that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, another government agency, also got involved in the anthrax attacks. And this was new information to me because the, there's nothing about this in the FBI's report whatsoever. And what this document apparently showed is a Nuclear Regulatory Commission was hired to trace radiation. And apparently in these documents, it shows that some of the anthrax spores had been radiated or irradiated, however you say it, with um, cobalt radiation, which is a method used in high level labs uh, to render dead or mostly dead a colony of anthrax spores, for example, or, or other similar um, things like anthrax. So this document was showing somehow that it didn't come from Fort Detrick. And that was my conclusion from what I discussed with him. He doesn't, he didn't know the details of like the anthrax investigation. So as I was discussing this with him, uh, I was sort of feeding him some of the details and it, it was, so the conversation was a little difficult uh, because it was, you know, he was, he only had limited time. Um, right. But, you know, the, I guess the craziest thing that came out in that discussion was that this paperwork for some reason was actually squashed by Dick Cheney or not, not, the, not the whole document that this FBI whistleblower put together, but this specific document from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had been squashed by Dick Cheney for some reason. And that was the thing that stood out to me the most, is that somehow the Bush administration reached it indirectly. To, that's one of the only times that we know that they did that, reached directly into the FBI investigation and told them not to include this for some reason. So that tells me that that's worth looking into. And if this FBI whistleblower somehow got those documents to Matt to heart. We need to get those documents somehow. Right. Um, and unfortunately, when he was arrested for this child pornography charge, uh, they took his thumb drives, which allegedly have these documents still on them. So they're in the possession right now of the U.S. Justice Department still. Um, and who knows if they've been erased. You know, we don't, we haven't seen them, unfortunately. But I have spoken to other people who have verified to me their existence uh, that I trust. So uh, that's all I'll say about that specifically. But I mean, 
I, I, my personal take was that he was telling the truth. He had no reason to lie about this. It hasn't helped his case in any way. Um, you know, the media attention that's come out of it has been very little. So I don't really see what motive he would have. You know, if he was maybe, let's say in theory, if he had done a GoFundMe because he's some kind of anthrax whistleblower or something, sure. then maybe I would have had a different perception of it. But there was nothing, I didn't get anything like that from it. I mean, I, I hmm. felt that he was totally genuine. Yeah, and... So again, like with his case, the guy Matt DeHart, it's it's worth um, backing up and just kind of mentioning he was apparently kind of a anonymous 4chan guy, kind of a, a like we said, hacktivist. He and some other people set up a, a, a shell where anybody could anonymously upload documents. And the, the way he tells it is he came back to the shell one day and found that somebody had uploaded these documents that were allegedly put together by an FBI official that um, implicated the uh, CIA and the anthrax attacks. And he discovered these in late 2009. And then, like, just, I think, three months later is when he's hit with these child pornography charges. Um, and as you mentioned, of course, the government seized the documents. So, you know, we it's just like it's very frustrating to me. And the government, of course, won't let us see these documents. So um, but what you do know is just like from this Wikipedia in 2012, um, the judge hearing his case, Alita Traeger, uh, was allowed to read classified documents about DeHart. Um, and in uh, their ruling, they said um, he thought that uh, he um, DeHart thought that the search for child pornography was really a ruse to try to get to try to get the proof about his extracurricular curricular national security issues. I found him very credible on that issue. And that's a quote from the judge in the case. So who had seen the classified documents. And, and so it does just kind of really bother me. And it seems like a very real possibility that they were just like, hey, what the fuck can we get this guy on? And I don't, of course, know if whether or not he's guilty of the, the child pornography charges or whether or not he was set up there. But it does seem very ridiculous that they can just say, oh, hey, he's guilty of child porn, so we have to seize all these documents now and nobody can see them and uh, he'll be in prison, federal prison for seven and a half years. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I I try not to comment on you know, whether I think he's guilty of, of the charges or not, because it, to me, it almost doesn't matter because it, it, the, the actual sentence he got and how it happened to him does seem like it, he was targeted. I mean, hmm. so regardless of his innocence, it's, it's, I think it's pretty unmistakable that, you know, it wasn't just, she was captured up in some kind of net or larger sting. It seemed like he was deliberately specifically targeted, which is interesting. Why would they do that? Um, right. So that raises questions. Uh, but there's also something interesting I wanted to mention that, you know, the reason why I think this is so credible is because we already know that there were FBI whistleblowers, you know, not just because of what I told you earlier, that there were leaks coming out like months after the attack saying that this is the AIM strain from the FBI. We don't know who that was, but we do know Richard Lambert, one of the top people in the FBI investigation who spoke to Mueller regularly about it uh, during the investigation. He filed a lawsuit against the FBI later and the U.S. Justice Department saying that they stovepiped the evidence to make it appear that Bruce Ivins was the only s potential suspect and that he felt that the investigation was manipulated. Um, his lawsuit, the filing's available online. You could check it out. There's an interview that he's done. Actually, one of the, one of the only interviews he's done on the Ed Opperman report 
Um, for some reason he hasn't done any other media appearances about this, but he, you know, and there's also been other lawsuits against the justice department. Robert Stevens wife sued the government uh, eventually because their conclusions were it came from a bio, you know, one of our bioweapons labs. So her lawsuit was, well, then you're responsible for my husband's death. She won uh, a, a settlement from that. Uh, Stephen Hatfield won a $6 million settlement mm-hmm. after the FBI targeted him and, and, and he claims that they nearly drove him to suicide at a certain point, which is also noteworthy because is that what happened to Bruce Ivins? I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, more conspiracy people than me will, will just question his suicide and be like, well, he was suicided. Well, I mean, we already know the FBI was literally you know, intimidating other suspects so much that they've said in interviews that they contemplated suicide when they were being targeted themselves. So, you know, this Bruce Ivins already did show signs of possibly being mentally unstable. And I don't know what kind of dirty shit the FBI was up to, but to me, it's possible that that's what happened in that scenario. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, I've been thinking about this last week, and it's really been bothering me because I think even people who don't ascribe to, again, quote unquote, conspiracy theories at this point will acknowledge that police in the United States do sometimes plant drugs on subjects. They do sometimes set people up to go down. (laughs) And I think in the digital age where you can just have the FBI kick in your door and seize your laptop and then suddenly say, oh, we found child porn on this. I think these kinds of setups absolutely do happen. And I think when you just think about it for 10 10 seconds, it's actually far more effective than planting drugs on somebody because the general population has a revulsion towards these kinds of child predators. And you're looking at like a fucking decade in prison where you're going to get stabbed if anybody in general population gets near you. Oh, yeah. it's I mean, it's crazy. Um, And there's been, you know, there's been... There's been other instances in the past. I mean, you know, I I don't know if Scott Ritter, for example, was targeted. I don't know what exactly uh, he did or did not do. But, you know, it, like his whistleblowing may have attracted the attention of some people trying to set him up. But maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't necessarily completely innocent. But the fact that he might have been targeted kind of raises questions as well. So, right. you know, this, you know, this may have been this may be a common practice <laughs> that we don't really know about. That that uh, Operation Avalanche you were mentioning earlier. I mean, yes, that sounds very fascinating and worth looking into. But you know, he I he, he seems totally credible to me, and I think just there's just no reason why he would make up something about the anthrax attacks when it's such a it's like one of the most memory hold stories there is, and not even just like in terms of like media coverage, but just in like conspiracy world. I mean, how many conspiracy videos are even out there about anthrax? I've I've never seen any. It just seems like a subject even largely ignored by that world as well. So right. I don't. It just doesn't make sense to me why he would randomly throw something like that out there. So, well, I mean, as a thought experiment, just imagine you are a person who uh, <laughs> watches and consumes child pornography. Uh, would you accuse the Central Intelligence Agency of being involved in the 9-11 attacks? Is that a good idea to bring a spotlight towards the <laughs> lifestyle that you are involved in in your spare time? Or would you just kind of keep your mouth shut about this sort of thing? It's a fair thought experiment. Yeah, but also just on <laughs> the, the Operation Avalanche thing. Like, so this is, I don't know all the details here, but it just, I just, I, the Twitter user at Really Bad Poster 
uh, had this tweet uh, that I retweeted that I thought was so interesting. Operation Avalanche was launched by Attorney General John Ashcroft in uh, August 2001, so a month before 9-11. It was a massive child porn sting operation that ended up falsely accusing several anti-war activists. I think they ended up arresting uh, 100 suspects. um, And of course, the I believe all no the all of them were falsely charged on the evidence. Some of them they got on unrelated stuff, but so it's this massive child porn sting that uh, does end up targeting several anti-war activists uh, falsely. But then three years ago, apparently they released a Hollywood movie called Operation Avalanche, which is about Stanley Kubrick and the CIA faking the moon landings. So if you were to Google Operation Avalanche, or if you were to Google Operation Avalanche CIA, mm-hmm. you're just going to get this fucking movie and not this kind of weird uh, fake sting they set up against the anti-war movement. Hey, Robbie, I, I had a question for you. Um, you know, from the frontline piece, they mentioned that they collected, uh, I believe it was 30 terabytes of content from uh, Bruce Irvins. Uh, I Sorry, is it Ivins? What was his last Ivins. name? Ivins. Yeah, uh, Bruce Ivins. Um, do you know how much was collected from DeHart, like the size of uh, the, the thumb drive that was uh, taken from him? You know, it's. I think it's probably in my article somewhere, but I can't, I don't remember offhand. No. That's more. That's more than fine. I like you know when they said that the amount they got from Ivan's was thirty terabytes. Like I think people hear that they're like, oh, that's a size of media. But like one terabyte is five hundred hours worth of movies. Like so, the fact yeah. that they collected so much from Ivan's, I was very like, what did they get? Now sometimes, uh, from what I've understood, that uh, police reports will just write the limit of the content. So like. If they take my five terabyte hard drive, we've talked about this in the show previously, and I only have 100 gigabytes worth of stuff, the police will say that I I have five terabytes of X, Y, or Z. So -hmm. I'm just curious as to um, if that played into the amount of uh, files that DeHart had on the CIA situation. That's a really good question, yeah. I mean, I think that from what I understand, they fit on a relatively small thumb drive for that time period. Okay. So I don't think that they... I mean... You know, they may have wiped other like computers at his home and things like that. But from what I understand, it was it was a relatively small thumb drive. I don't think it was more than like 16 gigabytes. But as you said, I mean, 16 gigabytes worth of like PDF files could be like, you know, a lot. So, uh, but he said there were a lot of like, he he made it seem like there was a lot of scanned stuff in there like that had redactions. Um, and, mm, uh, that's so like I said, a lot of handwritten notes as well, which is interesting. Mm. Um, so man, I mean, I'd really like to get a hold of that and I believe it exists. I mean, I don't think it's the Holy grail to like take down the deep state or anything, but I mean, I mean, it's pr- compared to other things that's, that have been leaked and things like, I mean, it kind of seems like it, it's pretty big, a pretty big deal to get a hold of that cache of documents. Yeah. It is a large puzzle piece when it comes to this nation over the last 20 years. I mean, this yeah. fueled the hysteria that, that uh, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, but uh, uh, very realistically, put us in the predicament the country's in right now. So, you know, it, um, 
the fact that there aren't that many conspiracies about anthrax is very intriguing because the reason Sean uh, mentioned the Operation Avalanche thing before we started was I was talking about researching this episode and I kept YouTubing anthrax and finding Scott Ian from the band just <laughs> having fun riffs on his guitar and I was like I was like oh yeah oh yeah Scott Ian the cool beard you know like I I'm not I'm not the biggest fan I haven't really listened to their music but he used to be on like the best week ever uh you know I love the 80s 90s series and stuff on VH1 and in my mind I'm like wait is that a psyop so that when you google anthrax you get this cool fucking band instead of this uh poison that uh, has <laughs> maybe killed people <laughs> yeah if you if you want to just go absolutely insane start researching how many hollywood movies and musical projects are actually cover names for cia black ops <laughs> oh shit uh, but there's uh, two other things, two last things I just want to mention real quick before we close out here. Uh, just again from the Wikipedia on DeHart, apparently two years after his initial arrest in Canada, the U.S. Department of Justice admitted there were classified reports on him, which re- which confirmed he was arrested, quote, for questioning in an espionage matter, unquote. And it was a, quote, unquote, national security investigation, uh, but it made no mention of pornography. Uh, he has also, for what it's worth, claimed that he's been drugged and tortured throughout his prison stay Jeez. in various capacities. Um, and then just the other extremely weird uh, detail from the the actual Anthrax timeline itself that I that I got from your uh, podcast, Robbie, is apparently in October 2001, you quote a bioweapons expert, Francis Boyle, who says that he alerted the FBI um, as to the limited number of people with the capabilities to carry out these anthrax attacks, he apparently sent the FBI a full name of scientists, uh, you know, co- and contractors with access to these uh, mentioned, you know, government bioweapons labs. Soon after that, in October 2001, the FBI requests that the AIMS strain samples at Iowa State University be destroyed. He says this happened after he contacted the FBI and put together this list of all possible subjects. So I guess their cover story is that they destroyed all these AIM strain samples uh, in order to stop another attack. But it just seems very weird that they just went and destroyed this massive cache of evidence immediately after somebody uh, seems to kind of figure out the right track investigatively. Yeah, and the guy who, I mean, Francis Boyle doesn't have any proof of this, but he it happened right after he told an FBI agent named Agent Bowman about hmm. this uh, about this idea that he had, and and this, and you know, this agent took him so seriously, but the next action that took place was the opposite of what he expected to, which is the destruction of those samples. So, hmm. uh, you know, he's basically fingered this guy. And what's all, you know, he also comes up in the 9-11 investigation, uh, whistleblower Colleen Rowley, uh, who was trying to uh, get access to Mosawi's laptop with uh, FBI agent Harry Samet, I believe. Uh, they got thwarted by the same FBI agent who Francis Boyle fingers, completely unrelated to this. Uh, you know, they got thwarted by him during the attempts to get access to Mosawi's laptop in the months leading up to 9-11. So it's just a weird connection there with that guy. Yeah, speaking of weird, actually, I did remember one more thing from your podcast, and this is, as we would call it, circumstantial evidence, but, um, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong here, the tabloid, the building of the tabloid that got the anthrax attack sent to it in Florida was the same tabloid that earlier in 2001 had published passed out drunk pictures of uh, Bush's daughters. Is that correct, or am I uh, misremembering that? No, it's correct. Yeah. (laughs) 
Although All right. the idea that um, you know, there's been there was a rumor sort of in the conspiracy. There were some and all, all in fairness, there were some anthrax conspiracies earlier on, like in the early 2000s. And those are mostly what you'll find if you Google search stuff. And one of them was that Robert Stevens was the one who published that photo spread. Now I've looked into that. I've actually tried to follow that to see if any of that's true. I have the actual issue sitting to the left of me right here uh, where I'm sitting in my studio. And uh, there's no mention of Robert Stevens' names anywhere on that particular issue. So hmm. if, you know, if that is, it could be a random coincidence, but if there was anthrax sent there to get revenge for their negative coverage of Bush's daughters, it was just meant to kill anyone. It wasn't, uh, it didn't seem like it was targeted at anyone specific. Hmm. But maybe it was. I mean, we don't know, you know, because we the only we only have really circumstantial evidence from I think a 16 year old intern who worked at um, the AMI building that said that Robert Stevens got some kind of letter, uh, but they never found it. There's no physical evidence for its existence. Hey, you know, one thing I was wondering was if you'd seen this Whitney Webb piece about engineering contagion UPMC coronathrax and the darkest winter and its connection between the vaccine for corona and anthrax being produced at UPMC by people like uh, Jeffrey Romoff, who is the CEO of UPMC. If you look him up on YouTube, you find a speech where he proclaims, I am Caesar. So that man seems very stable. But what do you <laughs> think about the connection between billion-dollar pharmaceuticals and vaccines with anthrax? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there was, you know, anthrax doesn't really require a special vaccine. So in a way, well, specifically with anthrax, I don't think there's that much money there with anthrax specifically. Now, they did try to push through an experimental anthrax vaccine of some kind as early as the Gulf War. And uh, someone that comes up in Whitney Webb's article that's very interesting is Robert Cadlick. And uh, he is, he's funny because he's actually appears in the Operation Dark Winter newscasts as an act, like, and he's acting in it, pretending to, you know, be part of this, um, this uh, bio pandemic, bioterror pandemic. Right. And Robert Cadlick himself was involved in something that the Bush administration uh, was never able to actually uh, materialize. And this sort of ties into what you asked about the vaccine industry. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this particularly was the motivation for Bush's uh, attempt to do this, but after the Iraq war, uh, the Bush administration was actually trying to push for a mandatory uh, new smallpox vaccination for the American public. <laughs> and this never actually happened, but Bush did a whole speech about it. He he uh, wanted this, you know, he, he sort of made a whole presentation around it. Um, there was a lot of money put behind this. And... I think what eventually stopped it is the negative uh, sort of backlash against the Iraq war maybe happened sooner than they thought it was going to happen. And in addition to that, a bunch of health uh, you know, experts and doctors across the country were writing letters constantly to newspapers saying that this is not a new version of the smallpox vaccine. It's the same one that kills a certain percentage of the population guaranteed upon injection. What? We're going to have thousands of people dropping dead uh, in hospitals who get vaccinated across the country if you, if you do this. This vaccine is not necessary. But their whole logic trying to push it was that, well, terrorism is our new way of life here in the United States. We did get hit mm -hmm. with anthrax, you know. Um, so the next stage of this that they had been gaming out as they gamed out in the Operation Dark Winter exercise was this idea that 
Al-Qaeda or some other terrorist group would just unleash a like actual global pandemic, like smallpox or something that could spread across the entire world and just, you know, the ultimate terrorist attack was the thing they were fantasizing about. Um, and luckily it never happened, but they, they really did try to do that. And I don't know how much was of the motivation was uh, financial or from these pharmaceutical industries, but I would assume that a lot of it was, you know, for how dirty the Bush administration was acting during that time period with all the no bid contracts and all their, you know, the perks they were giving to companies that were close to people in their administration. So, I mean, I would say it's pretty likely, um, but in terms of right now, yeah, I mean, COVID, um, COVID is just making me, I guess, think about the anthrax attacks more. And sure. I'm hesitant to speculate on anything having to do with COVID, except for that, as Whitney Webb points out in her piece, Robert Cadlick and some of these same people, these like neocon uh, bioterror fear mongers were, are still in there. They're right. still in the Trump administration. So that's something to be concerned about. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if these people were involved in these attacks, but I they seem really sketchy to me. I wanted to ask you, so I, I sort when you're telling me when you're telling us that you think without you've you've theorized before that the anthrax attacks may have played a pivotal role in gal- like catalyzing public opinion for for to go to war and like without it you kind of wonder if if we actually would have would have been able to do it yeah like that i mean the iraq war protests were some of the largest in human history like even now yeah and i feel like i mean it's certainly plausible i was thinking i was trying to think of other events that also happened that um i think we were mostly talking before we started recording like the dc sniper attacks like weirdly have more significance in public opinion now than than the anthrax attacks i would say I was like, uh, I mean, that that happened, I think, during the run-up too, right? In 2002? Yeah, early 2002, I believe. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I, yeah, I think my, that thought is probably overly optimistic of me, to be honest, because it's, I mean, it played a pivotal role, but maybe, you know, maybe they didn't need it at all. Um, hmm. Maybe 9-11 was enough. I, but I think maybe the larger point I was trying to make is that it definitely, created a climate of hysteria that i think this that psychological trauma of it you know i mean 9-11 was was very traumatizing in of itself and then to have this idea that this wasn't over that this was sort of going to continue for months um that's the anthrax attacks was pivotal for that you know that sort of mass hysteria i guess you could call it um so yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, those, the, there were some of the largest protests in history and barely made a dent on uh, on the outcome. So, but I think there's there's like there's some truth to what you're saying in your estimation there. I think because Bruce I like whether or not Bruce Ivins did it, he was one of the lead suspects, and I think that I can see that sort of uh, stealing a lot of Americans' minds at the time, and to like it could be. Like your neighbor who's just like producing weaponized anthrax, and it's not some outside force; they're already here. And like that, at the time, I'm I'm trying to recall how things. It's hard to remember how feelings of fear from that long ago, like in your neighborhood or whatever. But like, yeah. uh, I do I do remember that shit kind of coming up. It's like okay, so 
uh, 9-11, while terrible, was an outside threat, whereas this one was from the interior, or like as, mm-hmm. as far as they knew. Yeah, and I think uh, what Sean brought up earlier, I think it was Sean who brought up the hoax letters. That played a really big role, too, because most of the letters that were going around the country were hoaxes. And John Ashcroft oddly did a press conference saying, don't send more hoax letters. It's illegal. Don't do this. Stop sending hoax letters. We don't like it. It's like, okay, are you trying to get people to send letters? Kind of feels like you are. And I mean, there was like thousands of them. I mean, there's like so many, most of the news reports when you look up anthrax letters, like if you actually look through like AP and the wire service uh, search engines, they're mostly hoax letter reports. That's true. Well, they could have taken a reverse psychology and be like, sure, send them. I don't care. No one one cares about this. Yeah, that was the, that's known as the press conference where John Ashcroft was winking the entire time. (laughs) Apparently, you also quoted Jeb Bush said something like that. He said, don't send any more hoax letters down when he was governor of Florida. Well, that's a weird thing. I feel like that's one more, you know, uh, without a risk of sounding too conspiratorial, you know, if you're interested in the 9-11 uh, rabbit hole, that's a whole other angle I feel like people ignore is like what happened in Florida is really bizarre. Um, and mm-hmm. the activity I told you about the hijackers trying to rent crap dusters and going to the hospital for supposed anthrax infection, that all happened in Florida too. And Jeb Bush was governor of Florida and he apparently reached in with his uh, authority and, and put a, a, a stop to some of the investigations happening down there as well mm-hmm. uh, with the flight schools and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did an episode about kind of the Saudi connection to 9-11, and uh, a lot of that was based off of Florida. And in fact, former Florida Senator Bob Graham has said that the FBI lied to him uh, when he was at the head of an investigative congressional committee on 9-11 about the Florida connection. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of um, unexplored questions. And look, if uh, if you, the listener, if we haven't convinced you, if you think if you think we're crazy, I think we can all agree that the easiest way to wrap this up is just let's have another investigation. Let's have a public congressional investigation, or let's have the inspector general look at this. Let's have an independent, trusted authority go through and look at the evidence. And I think that's what what everybody needs to demand because. The way I see it, this was absolutely murder, and uh, personally, I think the people who did it are still out there. Um, But Robbie, Mm. I want to thank you, uh, Robbie Martin, for uh, your time today. Uh, I do want to give you just a chance to uh, let people know where they can find you, and also, if you want, you can, of course, say um, if there's uh, anything that we didn't get to, which I'm I'm sure there's a lot, but uh, if there's anything else that you want to mention real quick, uh, feel free. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to touch on the last thing you said uh, quickly about the invest a new investigation. I think one of the things that doesn't give me hope about that is there does seem to be a pattern happening of people who could be valuable witnesses in this case, not just simply not saying anything, not talking to the press, um, sort of just staying on the sidelines. I mean, even when you bring it up to Tom Daschle or Patrick Leahy, they seem like they've just seen a ghost. They don't, they do not want to talk about it. So I think it would be, you would have to basically do a lot of foot dragging to get any, any key witnesses at this point, even any, I mean, where's Bruce Ivan's family? Why aren't they saying anything? You know, there's, there's questions I still have uh, about that. And that's what makes me believe that a new investigation you know, it would almost have to be done, at, I, I think, almost by journalists to start, uh, sure. like, who are really serious about this. And maybe that could pick up some enough steam and get some of these people talking again who feel comfortable enough to, 
you know, talk to the press. I mean, some of them have won enormous lawsuits also and settlements. So that complicates things. And they probably, I'm guessing at this point, you know, they probably signed an agreement where it's sort of over. No, don't talk about this anymore. You've gotten millions of dollars and um, that could be the situation. So, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I I would be very open to one. I mean, let's, let's bring it. So, um, so yeah, but, I, but I'm not hopeful. Um, but in terms of, uh, yeah, if, if anybody wants, you know, if you've already seen American Anthrax, the, it's like a 40 minute documentary short that I did. It's not really a short, but not a full length. Uh, you can check that out on YouTube. And, uh, there's another film series I put out, uh, that's a three part documentary series about the project for the new American century. Uh, they're sort of the neocons, uh, 17 of them went into the Bush administration, um, a bunch of them stayed out of the Bush administration. And there's a there's a lot about anthrax in the movie, but it's mostly about these characters uh, who were behind Project for the New American Century. All right. Well, um, thank you, Robbie Martin. Again, uh, we'll have uh, the links to some of his work in the description for this episode if you want to uh, learn more about this issue, because there's a lot there. Uh, Matt DeHart uh, is still in prison, uh, but keep an eye out for the Enemies of the State documentary. Hopefully that at least raises some public debate and some awareness and increases um, these demands for a new investigation. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Stu Jeffers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Uh, Check us out on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.